0: We're going to do. Um, I'm going to um, try to stay with. We've moved on from the medieval poetry, so what I'd like to do now is is read some poems that are contemporary with Shakespeare. You, we've already, I think, I think done them already, but um, it's okay to do them again because very often the more we hear it, the, the more we appreciate and the deeper the meanings come to us um, welcome you guys help yourself there's good food there and coffee and other things um, I, I read I read the one poem one of the sonnets by Shakespeare to set it against some others by um, Petrarch because it was a way, I thought, that would help you understand Shakespeare's realism. That, it meant a lot then, when we were doing Merchant of Venice, I think, when we first started him and Dante, but I hope it will mean even more, this notion of realism, because it's gonna go to the heart of what I take to be going on in both um, Othello and Hamlet. Um, I've got some difficult, naughty things to get through here. And I'm hoping that that the Shakespeare plays will help um, strengthen our trust in him um, because of what he helps us to see and feel. So if you could pull out the the Shakespeare poems. um, You should have it from a long time ago, but if you don't, we've got a stack there. It's, It's found at 116, 129. One thirty, seventy-three. Okay. And I'd like to read one thirty and 80 seventy-three 80. tonight. Yeah. You all have it, Shakespeare sonnets. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The the back
0: Does everybody have it?
2: Yeah. That's okay. on
0: both sides. Remember, sonnet one, one thirty. And by the way, just a, a, an important note here. I hope it's becoming more and more clear, it should be for those of you who have been at this for a while now, that we can never read a work in isolation. We, we know from reading Homer, and the, the Iliad, the Odyssey, Virgil, and the Divine Comedy, and I, I hope it became clear, even in Merchant of Venice, that, that poets are writing with the tradition in mind and they're carrying it forward. Here, I want to underline, I really want everybody to hear this. Pay pay attention if you just can't for for a moment really... The reason this is so important is this. When we read a poem, we, we tend to focus on the literal meaning of the words in front of us. Yeah? That's what it means. But if we're seeing anything about poetry right now, we should be seeing that whatever is present to our senses, whatever's being said in the words on the page, has other dimensions of reading of of works that are contained in that even though they don't show. So when we were reading Virgil, for example, we were reading about Aeneas's voyage, right? But at some point, for those of you who had read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you knew that every line in Virgil carried something of Homer with him, that he was recreating Homer and changing it. So there was a meaning to the text that wasn't just contained in the it was implied in the literal words on the page, but it but it wasn't obvious, and it wasn't literal. So one of the things we should be seeing is that poetry teaches us to be aware of a larger world of meaning than is present in the visible poem in front of us. There's always a larger world, so the, the poetry is taking us into something greater beyond the text, even though the way into that world is through the text. We can't get to it any other way. Same here. In Sonnet 130, Shakespeare's got Petrarch on his mind and Petrarch's habit of idealizing the beloved, the woman. He always talks about her as having this extraordinary ideal beauty and and his emotions are lavish and intense and deep. Um, To an Englishman, he would have probably said excessive, too excessive. Shakespeare is, is aware of that when he writes this sonnet And he's playing this sonnet off against Petrarch. In some sense, you can say it's a parody, but in another sense, it's it's a way of reaffirming how special ordinary things are. If we love them the right way, we don't have to idealize something to love it properly. You know, because our habit so often is to want to make something better than it is. I I think we learned that from Dante. Remember the Siren episode that idolatry is is making more of something as a way of reflecting our sense of how much more we deserve is that clear
3: sure.
0: we create these images because we deserve them you know we so we make things more than they are as a way of answering the desires that we have in the pride that we feel we saw that in Dante we saw it in um, uh, Merchant of Venice, right? With um, Aragon and, uh, and Morocco. Because remember, when Aragon and Morocco went to the ordeal scene, they both chose a casket thinking they deserve better. The gold, the silver. It was only Bassani who said, um, who, whoever chooses me must... Um,
1: Give up everything.
0: Yeah, but what was the word? Must... Um, not, not risk. risk. Must, must hazard all he has. He has to risk everything. The only way you can do that is is through is with the humility that you have, that you feel that you don't deserve the beloved. And you remember that exchange between Bassanio and Portia after after the after the um, ordeal is over. <clears throat> where Bassanio declared his love for her and, and Portia virtually laid on her state and said, you are my lord now. And So there was that mutual self-giving, a complete humility, which assured us in a comic world that whatever they went on to do would be fruitful because they brought that humility to what they did. So, so remember that poetry is always showing us a larger world. It's helping us to feel things, to see things that are always in the thing in front of us, even if we don't see it. There's more going on than we're aware of, okay? So, Shakespeare's sonnet, 130. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why, then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow in her head. I have seen roses damask, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks, and in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my wrist my mistress reeks." <laughs> and all of us have had that experience, I know we all. not um, Has anybody ever wakened in the morning to write a poem about your beloved's bad breath? <laughs> Just remember, Shakespeare's done it. I love to hear her speak. Yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. His, rare for, his love for her is as rare because he loves her. He sees a goodness in her that other people who too preoccupied with service beauty won't see Sonnet 73, this is a sonnet about aging and, and learning to love something more deeply because we know we're going to lose it. Sadly, we shouldn't have to lose a beloved before we feel that. But hopefully it's something we learn to feel before we get to that point. Sonnet 73, At time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves, or none, or few to hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ring choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away, death's second self that seals up all unrest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest which makes thy love more strong to love that well which thou must leave ere long." Remember, typically the Shakespeare sonnet has three quatrains, groups of of four lines that rhyme, and each one is a different, um, it's an exemplum, it's three exempla, three different examples of a theme, so in the first quatrain he, he, he talks about love in terms of that time of year, it's winter, right, the, the, the boughs are fading, they're losing their, their leaves, but interestingly in that, in that time, um, the memory of birds that sang there still lingers. In the middle quatrain um, he likens his love to that moment at twilight when the day goes down, the sun goes down, um, and um, sleep comes and it's appropriate because sleep in some sense is a second self it's like a shadow a copy of death um, and the final one is the example of the of the ashes going on on a fire that the, the very fire burning consumes itself burns itself out so the very life source in all of us burns itself out we um, we're, we're dying being consumed by our own life um, every moment of our lives. Okay. Um, Okay. Did everybody get the quotes from Othello? I I wanna try to do this um, as quickly as I can. I made a promise to my wife have to keep it here.
3: <laughs> Wait, can we get a picture of that, please? <laughs> okay.
0: Um, quick review, quick review. Um, we're leaving Venice in some sense and in some sense not. Remember, we've seen that Venice is what the usurious, <coughs> the usurious city? It's the sterile city. Remember? Boy, I'm really sorry that Carl's. I mean, uh, um, huh? Fred and Fran, oh, yeah, and Francis and are not here. Um, the usurious sterile, sterile city. Remember, it breeds money. We don't see life coming into being. The very nature of the city and the fact that it's based on law, and the very nature of the law is to, um, is to bring on death. It's Paul's reading of the law, that under the law we all die, that the law makes us aware of our sins and our mortality. Um, everything about the city in Venice is, um, is directed towards that outcome. I uh, remember when Shylock says, um, what good is a pound of flesh? It's, it doesn't bring me the worth of muttons, beef, or goats. You can't sell it. So the human being is um, loses his value. He has no worth because you, things things are given worth in Venice according to the price that they bring in, the money that they bring in. So it's the sterile city, it produces money, it breeds money, but human life is at risk, and that's the whole action of the play takes us toward the courtroom scene where Antonio's life is <coughs> at stake. It's the usury city, the sterile city, it's also the, the city of self-sufficiency. In Othello, remember those lines at the opening when Rodrigo is hollering, thief, robbery, and Brabantio sticks his head out and said, what are you talking about? This. What are you talking about? Thievery and robbery. Uh, this is. This is Venice. This is not a grange, because the ideal of the Venetian city is self-sufficiency. The people. People can use their, powers of resourcefulness, their intellect, to improve their condition and make themselves self-sufficient. I hope everybody sees that. The other. The other day. Um, Suzanne had put away her phone and was away as a part of an advent, something the two of us try to do. Put her phone away, and as I approached lunch, she was away. I think she was here helping out with the hospitality for um, the um, communion service, the communal penance service. And I wanted to call her, and she didn't have her phone. And I thought, how good. I mean, my first instinct was to call her, it was about lunch. <laughs> Um, and I thought at the time, how good, Be- because it's moments like this that you learn to trust in God. How, much, how many of us have, have, I mean, how aware are we of the, our dependency on technology today, if our computers go down or our phones go down, we feel like we're practically lost. I don't think that's a good a good thing myself, but it's this condition of self-sufficient that we think we're self-sufficient, we don't need God, but that also leaves us vulnerable to those things outside of reason. That's what Othello's about. That, Insofar as people think they're sufficient unto themselves and with their powers of reason they can deal with anything, they don't deal with evil. Remember everything outside of the reason was magical, charms, superstitions, um, which meant they were terribly susceptible <laughs> to Iago and evil, the workings of evil. They're, they're too trusting they take people at face value. They're, they're not on guard enough evil, and it makes them too susceptible to be tricked. Right? That's the nature of the Venetian world. That's what we saw. So that was the world that we were in. Um, I want to come back to it and look at Othello for a minute, but I want to just re- remember, that's, that's the image of the city. That, and, and actually, it's a continuation of the image of the city we got from Dante. Because in Dante's Divine Comedy, we saw that Florence was that city. That, that's us. That's the coming into being of the commercial republic, America, America today. We also looked at genres for the first time. I think it's, it's the first time we've done that. And I want to take a minute here because it's so important. It's, it's something up until this time really hasn't had a place in what we're doing together but I think finally it does. Um, Remember I said that there are three genres the lyric poem, drama, and epic. Or today we'd call it narrative, right? We'd say um, the novel, because remember the novel means new Novel is a form of narrative. It's 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 epic. Its source is the epic. I mean, it was the long narrative. It, it's the novel, short stories, detective stories, whatever subgenre you want to give. But but it's a form of narration. These are the three genres, and I went over the nature of them. Remember, lyric is a garden moment. It always shows the I am. I am that am. It's the subject subjectivity of the poet. The poet expressing his feelings generally for the beloved, not always, but for the beloved. Here. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. He's expressing his emotions for his beloved in such a way that we can see how free they are from vanity and how grounded they are in ordinary things. He does the same thing in Sonnet 73. That time of year thou mayest me behold that I that I feel this time of year, that winter is upon me. I'm dying. Um, that um, this time, of, or, um, in me, you see a, you, you see the sunset fading. That is, if you look closely at me, what you see is a person who's dying. Winter, sunset, the fire going out. Those are different aspects of the person, the I, the, the poet and then concluding saying this thou perceivest, which makes thy love more long to love that well which thou must leave ere long. We're all gonna die. The lyric poem, generally speaking, tends to be about the inner life of the emotions of the poet. Those things we can't see. He takes that inner world and makes it knowable. We can, we can conceive of it, we can understand it, we can also see what his feelings are. He makes that present to him. Drama goes into the outer world. Remember that in the, the motion of the lyric is towards death, and the, um, the two forms of drama are tragedy and comedy. Tragedy is preeminently about death, comedy about a renewal of life. Um, if we keep moving with the direction of the, of the genre wheel, we come to narrative, and all epics in the ancient world, remember, were about battles. Um, they were trying to deal with some disorder and the whole movement was towards a moment when they would overcome that disorder, um, and the conditions would be laid for a founding. The disorder would be answered, the conditions for a new order would come into being. Every epic was about a founding, so it returns us to the garden. So the whole direction of the lyric is from a garden, to the new Jerusalem, to a new order. That's the whole order, so that in all, all three genres, we see the whole of our experience as human beings. Every aspect of our experience, inside, outside, the whole movement of it, all of them have to do with our struggle here on earth, inwardly, outwardly, to recover this lost order. the, the one thing that I wanted to focus on last time and again this week is the action of tragedy. And remember comedy is the same because comedy is the opposite. So everything we can say about tragedy can be said about comedy as well because it's its mere opposite. But if we look at the plot of tragedy what we see is this. All tragedy is, um, involves a movement from good fortune to bad to bad fortune it's always towards something that appears to be good um, and then moves us towards some bad some catastrophe comedy is the opposite it, it's a movement from bad fortune to good what Aristotle said is that the 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 um, the plot is the soul of tragedy? It's the soul of tragedy? Not character. We've turned that around. We tend to make character. That's really wrong because it's not principally about... we've seen that over and over again from the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Um, You can't leave character out, but the the poems are always about an action, some movement of spirit taking place. Remember from the Iliad, the, the ransom, the quarrels, the climax and all—all all that's reversed at the ending, the reversal of the ransom, the reversal of the corals. It's all—it's a movement that inverts itself because at the center of it is a change that takes place in Achilles. It happens with all tragedy. The plot is the soul of tragedy, and the plot is an imitation. It's an imitation of an action. and so all of the events in the plot that constitute the plot every single every single event that makes up the plot is an imitation of an action and by action he had to mean an invisible movement of spirit some change that goes on inwardly in the character without the plot we couldn't know example well take take achilles i mean just we could take any character but take achilles we'll, um, we'll take Othello in a second, yeah. but take Achilles. Look, um, Achilles is a proud angry man at the beginning of the Iliad. He, um, he and um, Agamemnon quarrel. When we look at Achilles at the beginning of the Iliad, is there any sense in which he's going to undergo a turn in the play, and in the epic, that he will change? None. The two men are, they are products of an honor code. <coughs> what we learn to see in the Iliad, that, the, that there's this profound disorder in the honor code that people think that the worth of a person is determined by his material booty, his wealth, so they keep fighting to gain more booty. How modern is that? But remember, in the middle of the play, he, when they, Agamemnon sends the embassy, take all these gifts, he says, such honor is a thing I need not. I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He couldn't have said that unless he, stepped, he was beginning to step outside that honor code. So a change is taking place. There's no way Homer could have rendered that interior life then, um, but we know that something's changing and then we know, we know visibly a change occurs because after Patroclus' death he comes out and says, I let everybody down. Could we have, could we have foreseen that at the beginning? I don't think so and that everything that happens after that inverts the whole motion of the beginning. So we see a movement, a, an inward movement in Achilles and in the whole play, because what the action that sets the plot in motion at the beginning is inverted at the end. So, so and we can only see that if we look at the plot and follow it closely. That's true, we'll see it in, here in, in a second. Um, so, um my reason for wanting to pick this up right now is because it goes very much to what's going on with Othello, but I wanna but I wanna make I want to underscore this because we've talked about it now for a couple of nights. Remember, according to Aristotle, every good tragedy, the best tragedy always has a moment when the action turns. The word for that was parapetia. A turn in a church, our word to describe that motion is a metanoia. A metanoia, turning. Okay? And he said, in The Greatest of Tragedies, this this turn always is accompanied by an anagdorosis, a recognition the tragic hero sees that something was wrong in what he was doing that he didn't see before, and he turns. And I've described that moment as those conversion moments in our life where we think we think we see everything, we think we have all the answers to things. That's the way we go around the world. We've got all the answers we know. Oedipus is the paradigm. And if you all know Oedipus Rex, um, remember he was the king of Thebes, and there was a plague, and he wanted to find out what caused the plague, and he starts making inquiries, and um, he does get closer and closer, and he, he finds himself getting angrier and angrier, and finally it turns out that the cause of the plague was himself. That he was the one who killed the king, his father, and actually married his mother. So he's the one who's brought on the plague, and when he sees that, he tears out his eyes. That's how Oedipus Rex ends. So the peripatia is that moment when he sees that in fact, as hard as he tried to find out who it was that was responsible for it, he was. And he turns. He, he's not the arrogant, proud man who thought he had all the answers before. He's humbled. He sees that he didn't know what he thought he knew. And he ends, the ending of the play shows Oedipus with his eyes gouged out and blood pouring down them. And lots of people think that's horrific. I happen to think he's a beautiful creature. I mean, I'm not exaggerating at all. He sees more truly than anybody in the play at that point except maybe the prophet Teresius. And I don't think even Teresius sees what Oedipus does. So um, every tragedy for Aristotle is an affirmation of reason. It restores us to a rational sense of thing. In the terms in which we've been using it in in our work together, it's the logos returning. That there's some affinity between the human person and and the world. Let me put it differently. Things didn't have to turn out that way. Oedipus is blinded, but he sees truly. Put it differently. What if at the end of Othello, nothing of what Iago did was ever disclosed? How would it have ended? Othello kills Desdemona. everybody goes off and unaware of what's going on, right? But that isn't the way Shakespeare leaves it. We're not left in the dark at the, end of, at the end of Othello, right? Horrible things have happened, but we see, and so does Othello. And that's where I'm going with this. All tragedy is not an affirmation of a nihilism, which is what the modern mind does with tragedy. They'll say that the poets are, are affirming a nihilistic view of the world, that, that the world is really meaningless. That is not what Shakespeare's doing. If you watch the direction of tragedy, even though it ends with everybody dying It's a restoration of truth, justice, goodness, above all reason that people see. Now, let me just underscore this for a second. Jane Joyce, a modern writer who who knew Aristotle and who knew St. Thomas really well, really well, said, it's a serious mistake when journalists say things like this. The girl was riding along in a carriage and a piece of glass shattered and a sliver of glass pierced her and she died. That was a tragic death. That is not a tragic death. That is a horrible death. It was an accidental death. It does not constitute a tragedy because a tragedy is an integrated action in the way that we've been struck. It's a movement of spirit towards some, some good, the loss of it because of some fault in the hero, and then a reordering, a scene, a goodness. Okay, and I hope this is really clear. And let me let me put this even differently to try to illustrate it. The, since the Protestant mind, the world has been... Um, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, um, when you're maxed out, um, it's been flooded with horror stories. Because the vision that entered the world in the 16th century is that there is this depravity to man that's natural. He could not do any good without Christ's help. We're depraved. If you, if you, we watch, I watch a good number of movies during the week. that's my one break from, I watch a lot of movies. I stay away from horror movies because they're, to me, they're. By, every once in a while I'll watch something, but it's really interesting to see what comes out of Hollywood today. I would say at least 75% of the movies are horror stories. I'm not exaggerating you, they're horror stories. And my, my The impression I have from the ones I've seen is they all end with the source of horror still alive. It's like the demons are still in charge, yeah? That's not a tragedy. That's a horror. Has Shakespeare ever written a play to end like that? Absolutely not. I mean, no playwright has ever shown us the horrors that he has. Iago watch what happens to Lear or Anthony Cleopatra or Othello or Macbeth or I mean, read all the tragedies. You watch these very noble men who have a flaw, who do some things that, that result in calamities. Genuine. by the way Winter's Tale is going is to knock all of this out of the park. I mean what he does with Winter's Tale is extraordinary. Leontes has to be one of the worst characters and yet he undergoes a conversion that is just, I mean it's just, to me it's the most extraordinary thing I've ever read in my life. These noble men do these horrible things. No tragedy ends with some sense that the horror engulfs us. Ever. That's not a tragedy. So it's really important when, when we're thinking about tragedy to keep this in mind that the whole action is an affirmation of reason. It shows that there is some logos working in the world. Otherwise, how could all these horrible things end in refoundings, a cleansing, a justice? At the end of Macbeth, a new order comes in. At the end of Lear, a new order comes in. At the end of um, Othello, the, the evil's been answered. It's a time for a new order. Will it come in? We don't know. But we're not left with any sense that Hiago is one. All the evils have been answered. We are aware of them. Imagine a play in which that didn't happen, where Othello kills Desdemona, and then we go on without, ever find, without anybody ever knowing what happened. How satisfying would that be? It wouldn't satisfy because it doesn't satisfy our reason, our sense of an inherent goodness in the world. So, it's really important to think about what's going on in a tragedy in order to appreciate what happens at the endings. Okay. Um, now let me stop. I want to just make this this last comment on Othello before we leave. But let me stop here before I try to tie all this up. Any. I've got two, two more remarks to make on genres and poetry, but um, any questions on on what tragedy is and, and its form? Um, the popular use of the word, oh what a tragic, you know, it's just, that isn't what tragedy is. In its deepest sense, tragedy always takes us to what Louise Count Ca- 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 called the tragic abyss. It takes us into a darkness to see this darkness and then brings us out of it. It always involves, uh, if we're left in the darkness, how could it be a tragedy? It would be nihilism or horror but it would not be a tragedy. A tragedy implies a recovery, a seeing, a turn. So it, it, it's always, it always moves in the direction of a, of a founding, a restoring, a cleansing. Justice has been done. The conditions have, have been set out for a new order. Hamlet will end the same way. There'll be Everybody important will be dead. But all the evils will have been answered. So the regime is in a position to go on with a new order. Evil's been answered. It's not in charge. Same thing with Othello. We know that. Iago's been uncovered. Remember the irony is, the the great irony for me is he's alive to go back to Venice. I don't think that's an accident. Shakespeare's saying something about Venice there. Any questions about the genre or tragedy? I have one.
1: Is it an intentional dumbing down by Hollywood or is it just an ignorant misuse
0: of the word tragedy? What a good question. What a good question. How to answer that. That is such a good question. Um, I, I don't. I don't feel adequate to answer it here because to me it's so. It's so much larger. Let me just say this. I should have been prepared for that. Should have been prepared for that. It's, I'm getting worse and worse. It's just getting worse and worse. <laughs> um, let me. Let me just. Let me just say that simply. And I. I want. I, we don't have time to go into. This. The best way to answer that, in my mind, is to say that since the scientific revolution, after Copernicus, and a scientific world view replaces the classical Christian view up until the Renaissance, that we have lost a tragic sense of man. That our sense of remember we talked about this: are beginnings low or high according to a scientific world? Beginnings low. Yeah, we talked about this. Yeah. yeah. One of the most fundamental questions we can ever ask ourselves is what are our origins? Are they low or high? According to the ancient world, are our origins high or low? High. We're descendants of the gods for the most part. In the modern world, are our origins high or low? Low. Absolutely low. Apes, black holes. If you have a low view of yourself or your origins or you're nothing but the product of of forces over which you have no control, how can there be any tragedy? We don't have free will, and we don't have a noble sense of ourselves. Remember all tragedy all tragedy deals with a noble-souled individual, Achilles, Aeneas, Odysseus. Even Dante, who fainted again and again, remember one of the reasons he's wary about taking on the trip when they go into the inferno, he says, I'm not worthy to do this because he compares himself with Paul and Aeneas, and Virgil says, knock it off, get going. You know, Dante's the most ordinary of heroes, but he has to have something noble in if he's going to... He's very ordinary, and he never loses that. But he shows us that there is some great nobility in the soul because God made us. Our ultimate end is to be with God. We've lost a tragic view, and it seems to me one of the results of that is... It's to me. It's not the cause. One of the results of that is a dumbing down. That everything in the literature of our the modern world, particularly coming out of Hollywood, is sentimental, Um, slapstick. It's a comedy that's not very deep, and we've lost a tragic sense. When bad things happen, it's not with any sense of a tragedy. It's a calamity. Somebody gets killed, or machines. You know, I mean. but this sense that there is something noble to the human being that... Um, let me put it this way. The other thing that Aristotle says, um, all tragedy has a catharsis. It's a purging of two emotions. This is going to be... this is going to, For those of you who did the Divine Comedy, guess which one of the emotions? Can you guess, what are the emotions you should know? It's a very dangerous emotion.
1: What, anger? What are you talking about?
0: Uh, fear? It was, it was one that Dante was susceptible to again and again and again. We went over this. Pride. Um, I don't think of pride as an emotion. Pity. Remember we talked about how dangerous that emotion is? I mean, it, it's behind enabling the, it, the danger of it. According to Aristotle, he said, all tragedy involves a purging, catharsis of of pity and fear. How can we go on rationally if we're still motivated by pity and fear? Because pity, we know, can be paralyzing. When we're in the presence of suffering and we feel pity, that pity can arrest us. We've seen that again and again and again and fear is paralyzing. No, you're in the presence of the interior, you freeze. How can reason reassert itself if it's overwhelmed by pity or fear? So he said, there can be no catharsis, no sense of a fall unless there's a nobility, because watch, that. that's why I make such a point of saying, look at Othello in the... <laughs> the beginning of the play. He's so noble in everything he does. If we do anything to take that nobility away, we're diminishing the nature of the tragedy. The, how, how great the fall is. There's something great to man, that's what all tragedy shows, and the modern world has lost it. We, we've lost a tragic view, I think, sadly. Um, seems me, it seems to me, I'll put it this way, it seems to me Shakespeare was much closer to Christ. I believe Shakespeare was Catholic. There's a lot of argument about that, but there's, there's not a doubt in my mind. He was much closer to Christ in his view of the depths of our evil and of the graces that could answer it, the goodness that would answer it, or we wouldn't have tragic endings the way we have, than modern man who dumbs down, who wants to make everything nice, convenient, who wants security, control, no problems, who certainly doesn't want to look at the tragic abyss, the tragic aspects of life, so...
1: Well, there are some shows like I got to where writers put noble characters um, it as the. Did they ever characters. have to deal
0: with a tragic flaw in their own characters? And and
1: so that. And come to reasons. some
0: self knowledge. That's a big difference because we see lots of noble characters, but how ma- Remember the whole movement of the tragic character is self knowledge, that he comes to a point where he turns, he sees a fault and has to suffer the consequences and then goes on. How many noble characters in modern literature come to that kind of self-knowledge, see their faults, and acknowledge them? Achilles, I let everybody down. I mean, for an example, Othello, extenuate nothing. I took this turban and killed him. We're watching tragic characters in their nobility have to confront their sins and answer them. That's the nature of the tragic action, okay? Um, Okay, I I wanted to look at Othello's quotes. (laughs) My my wife is walking back, there, showing signs to me. (laughs) I want to ask Suzanne to do something here for a second. Um, I wanted to go through these quotes of Othello, but I'm not going to. I, I want to I try to put this in a, to see if I can sum this up because it really does go to Hamlet. Um, because Hamlet and Othello are alike in lots of ways. Remember that I said a couple of class meetings ago that um, I can remember a period where I was looking at Othello and going, why doesn't he just confront his wife? And I, I mean I get all these reasons. All of us can do that. And then I reached a point where I realized that's exactly what the Venetians do. Because the Venetians typically believe reason is sufficient. They've got good intellect so they can explain everything. By the way, Hamlet's going to blow this away. We're going to see this in a second. If Othello didn't blow it away for you, Hamlet is. The problem with Venetians is they think they've got all the answers, that reason is sufficient to explain it. But they don't deal with evil. One of the reasons they can't is because reason is not sufficient to deal with it. We can, we can deal with Satan. Good luck, you guys. I mean, I'm really serious about it. Why do we go to confession? Why do we have sacraments? It, I, I can't think of any other reason except on our own, we can't do it. We're outmatched. Satan Satan was intellect itself, and he turned from God. We're going to pit our intellects against him? Good luck. Do it. Yeah, I mean, we see the effects of it. Watch Iago work. We can keep using our minds to explain all of that away, and all that shows is we're in that Venetian world. What Othello? What Shakespeare's doing is something very different, and I want to get to this now. Um, this is so important to me um, because it's it's. You know, I've been pushing poetry at you, now for a year. Shakespeare never judges, ever. Think about that. He never intervenes in the play to make a judgment on a character. When we come across a Protestant, a Muslim, isn't our tendency to judge that person. All fathers' homilies go directly to this. I mean, they speak to it. So does St. Francis. Shakespeare never makes a judgment. Never. The play is the the judge itself. He, He creates an action that lets the characters play out their choices, whatever they do, and that has to stand on its own. But he never comes in to say, this isn't good, why did he do this, or this is the reason he did it, if he'd only confronted his wife. Why? Remember the the explanation offered of poetry. I keep elaborating, expanding on these definitions of poetry that I give you. Last week I tried to suggest that poetry, more than any other kind of knowledge, teaches us to grasp holes in our worlds, in our self-centeredness, we tend to stand in our world, looking at people, making judgments as because they're objects to our mind—a man, a woman, a protestant, a catholic—you know, whatever—he's got a disbelief. We make these judgments all the time, as if we're right, because our minds are so good. If we're if we're reading these plays well, we should be getting very wary of that power in us, because. If, if Merchant of Venice or Othello teaches us anything, we watch what Iago does with the mind and how susceptible people are to it precisely because they depend on it too much. Shakespeare never judges. He never objectifies anything. He takes us into all these characters, the multifaceted relationships of them, so we stand in the presence of a whole, watching all of them, getting to know all of them, inside and out. How often do we do that in our world? I'm assuming we don't very much. We tend to be self-centered. In poetry, we're helped to stand in the world the way God sees us. All of us. Inside and out. So, when we come to Othello at the end, it seems to me we have learned to see this very, very courageous man, this very noble, good man. I've gone through all the quotes, you know put your swords up. Um, the amazing, his calmness in dealing with battle and we saw this man undone by Iago. And the question that I asked you at the end last time was is this an act of despair or is it an act of justice motivated, motivated by something deeper? I tried suggesting then that if he goes back to Venice given the way Venice is they're going to find extenuations in what he did. They're going to say, this guy worked on him, he'll get off. He looks at Desdemona as this thing that he loved more than anything else in the world. So either what he did is an act of cowardice or despair, or what he did was noble, even if tragic. And it seems the argument that I'm making is that what Shakespeare does is take us into that world so we know this person from the inside, and we've been taught to see his nobility. Is there anything that he's ever done in this play that shows the slightest sign of despair or cowardice? I can't find anything in it. Um, we know this man from the inside. We're gonna, we're, by the way, we're going to find the same thing with Hamlet. We're going we're to be facing the same kind of question with Hamlet. How do we look at his end? He wanted to kill the king in vengeance. He does kill the king. Are his motives vengeance when it happens, or have they changed? If they have changed, have we seen it? Shakespeare takes us into the inside of characters, and if, if he's shown us that there's a nobility to them, it seems to me he's helping us to learn to love that person, to, to, I'm going to say, to see the way Christ does. Because remember Christ's words on the cross were, forgive them, they know not what to do. The, the guy in the cross next to him, he said, this night I will see you in paradise. So his whole view of looking at people is very different, I think, from our own. But Suzanne so and I had a, a conversation about this last week when we were at the table, and, and I've had pretty strong feelings about Othello, and she, she, was, she had reservations about him that night. And um, she had no reservations about Portia. I mean, Portia a virtuous woman. I mean, I do When we did Portia, remember, I think I said that she's a Christ-bearing figure. We see Christ in her. But Doc, can you share everybody? Can you go through? You, you said it was a a revelation or an insight. Can you describe how you came to that? What
3: happened? So I don't have any difficulty seeing Christ in
1: Portia, um, but it's hard for me to see Christ in the same way in Philip. Um, but I actually do trust my husband's instincts. So I went back to think about it.
0: Wait, so can I, like, I get the whole... <laughs> <can> you? <laughs> you got it
1: You got it. You got it you, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it seems to me that we've been talking about prophecies of, or intimations of Christ in um, Achilles and Odysseus and Aeneas and and then Christ comes. And so we no longer have intimations of him anymore. We have the perfect human God present. Um, So then when we look at heroes and we start looking for Christ, nobody's going to interrupt has been good, but nobody is going to measure up
0: to the real thing. Um, by the way, when, that's why I, earlier I said we suffer from two wounds here on Earth, all of us. We suffer from the wounds of our fall. That's a wound we carry, all of us. And I said we also suffer. We're wounded by Christ because his love is a perfect love. He calls us to it. We have to carry that wound to move towards him. So we're wounded by Him as well just because He is so, so good. It, it makes us aware of our faults. Hopefully it does. Lots of people don't admit them. But, I mean, that's certainly our belief or we wouldn't be here. And that also gives us a spur to try to go, grow, not just in knowledge, but in love, to be like Him. So we're wounded in two ways. But, sorry. No, that, that's
1: pretty much getting us to the end. It just seems to me that we are asked by Christ to see him in other people. And if we're seeing him in other people, we're seeing him in fallen, wounded, flawed human beings. But he's, he's present there um, if, we, if we look. And certainly when we look at somebody <coughs> who's noble like Othello, um, I have more trouble say, with Macbeth, but, um, but with Othello, I can certainly see um, Christ in him. Mm-hmm. So. And maybe yeah. they're like they're at a different place in their journey of how they surrender to the Holy Spirit or you know that I like, one person is oh. on that path and the other person's at their bottom and now Maybe that's why they don't
0: seem as like, The interesting thing too in a play, it's not like I mean you can look at a play in terms of troughs and high you know, but the play is always moving towards an end, and um, it's, so it's not like some people will lower I mean, there's a resolution taking place at the end of the play, and one of the interesting qualities of that resolution is, you weren't here last week. Uh, were you? Um, you remember I asked that question, does Desdemona come back for life, and what in the world does she mean when she says, nobody, I myself? Is she covering for Othello? Or is she taking responsibility? My reading of that is that if, if you put all that he says together before he kills her and she's hearing this, the Hanky and a, a Cassio and Iago, and it's hard for me to believe that that isn't what we call a liminal moment, a threshold moment, that at the point of death, as she's partly in this life and partly in the next, it's a liminal moment, it's luminous that she sees. So some people say she's covering for her husband. That to me is a, is a watering down again it seems to me that it's in keeping with her nobility that she sees that she was too innocent that she allowed herself to be used so she's taking responsibility for her for her own part in it so that there is this at the end of the play there is this it's a, it's a tragedy it's a loss to everybody but like Oedipus there's a real clarification a deepening in everybody's understanding of exactly what happened in this moment well, like Suzanne, basically,
2: I said the same problem with regard to, uh, you know, how do I see Christ in It was easy to do that in in the, in the Merchant, but in Othello, I had the same problem. But when you said that, it my it flipped my, my mind over and said, well, okay. But if I ask the question, do you see Satan in Othello, and how? And how, I don't think there's any problem of of seeing that or finding his presence in whatever takes place there as represented by Iazio. So the question is, is it easier for us as human beings to identify evil huh, than it is to identify good with regard to what we understand and what are we expecting too much out of Christ maybe to, to, to say well, his presence his evil is so profound. Do we we look for something as profound, perhaps, in what we want Christ to provide? Well,
4: but if you look at the ancient gods, the, the things that Virgil and everybody would have seen, those were all flawed in one way, or form, or another. Oh yeah, flawed. right. And they were based on emotions and things that humans would experience. If you look at Christ and if you look at God, it's what God experiences. We are a product of it. So it's not what we see in him, it's what he sees in us. But, yeah. And so I mean, I think you can see traits of Christ in characters throughout wherever their journey. You know, someone could be good, someone Satan could be bad or whatever. But I wouldn't even ask that question of Do you see Christ in a I that that wouldn't that question would never enter my mind. I mean, well, now you've heard it. <laughs> well, I mean, the concept of Christ have changed right. thought forever. Oh no. That's i mean before and after so there's a huge so your delineation there and a change in the way things are written about people look at things how people are judged how things are judged and it, sure it was yeah. such a profound impact
3: yep
1: so like king david was so vicious when he killed um, i forgot
0: the that he fell in love with Uriah. the she yeah the, her yeah. husband and yeah.
1: the front lines of the battle and and so, and
0: God used him mightily, and yet he was, you know.
4: Well, he was a vengeful God, God. And he
0: loved him. He never stopped loving him. Mm-hmm. The the I think I've mentioned this. I don't. I, I want to call this to an end if I can here. But the yeah. amazing thing about that story for me, we never get, we never go into the interior in the Old Testament the way we do after Christ, because Christ and Paul, all of Paul's letters and everything that Christ does makes it clear the inward life is far more important than the outward. What we're interiorly, what we're doing. We never get any sense of David, but we know what a cunning, manipulative man he was because he puts Uriah out on the doorstep to cover his tracks. That's so cunning. And and no, there's no mention of it. It's not described. I mean, you either see it or you don't. But God never stopped loving him. That's one of the reasons I want to... Pay, and then I want to stop because we've got to get to um, Hamlet here. It seems to me one of the reasons... I, I made this... Before you know, when I went over those passages that Athel speaks, if you look at the, if you look at um, the quotes that I gave you, I, I would ask you to all to go over this when you get home. It gives me wonder, great is my content to see you here before. Oh, my soul's joy! Um, I mean, you can go on and pick them, but we see. Remember, this is a man who's uneducated. He's a warrior. He doesn't belong to the military category of our modern military state. He belongs to that old class of warriors, like Achilles. He's a fighter, but he's entered this Venetian world of cunning and the the mind manipulating. That's a modern. That's a modern phenomenon. Um, so he's undone by it. He's not used. He's used to having people openly confront each other in a fight. But remember, I said that he he has that line where he says, "I am root of speech. Either poets are liars." they embellish things, which is what some people say, or Othello. Shakespeare's like God. I know this is gonna sound blasphemous. Shakespeare's like God. He's, he's giving Othello words and an eloquence that almost no men have as a way of showing those things within his own soul that he's incapable of expressing, but that is a part of him. Let me try to illustrate this differently if I can. I've got a a dear, dear friend of mine who's a fundamentalist. I I love this man dearly. Um, But his way of looking at the world is, it's a fundamentalist view. He looks at all Islams as if they're almost satanic. Um, And I think he's wrong. Um, And if any of you were here when you heard my talk on Islam, you know, in my mind, Islam is Antichrist. I mean, John's word is anybody who denies Christ is the Antichrist. Islam does at the beginning, so I have strong feelings about that. But I do not believe all Islams are condemned out of hand just by the fact that they're, con- they're Islam. For this reason, and this goes right to the point that I'm trying to make about Othello, which of us had choices in what we believed when we were brought into this world? Lots of kids are brought up in a fundamentalist world. That's, that will shape their mind. What is that? We've been talking about it again and again and again. It's Plato's cave. How many people chose to be a fundamentalist? Or how many people chose to be Islamic? They were born into this world, bred that way, without a transcendent view that questions it, how can they ever get out of it? So, Shakespeare, Shakespeare goes beyond that. He takes us into the life of a person so that we can live inwardly with that person so that we can begin to see things, I think, the way God does. That there is this extraordinary thing going on in these people. We can see inside Iago and watch the evil going on. How many of us can do that? Poets are the ones who show us the whole, inside and out. So it changes the way that we stand in the world. That we, and, I, and I believe, I believe this to the depths of my heart, Poetry helps us to learn to love each other better because we learn to feel what's in another person, see what's actually going on there, to help get us out of ourselves. The self-centeredness, the pride that so directs what we do so much of our lives. Anyway, look at that, look at the uh, quotation sheet just for one second. Look at the opening lines. When the Venetians arrive at Cyprus, Iago makes this facetious, playful remark, critical of women. And Desdemona says, how would, you, how would you flatter me? And he has these facetious things to say about women, but they're all a giveaway. Even though they're said playfully, we, we should begin to know by that point who this guy is. But here's what he says. O gentle lady, do not put me to it. That is, don't ask me to be sharp with my mind. For I'm nothing if I'm not critical. That to me is one of the most profound statements of modern of the modern Vernetian world, and I'm going to say all of us that I've ever read in my life. All of us have been raised to develop keen powers of criticism. We're good at criticizing other people. We, we stand in judgment all the time. Do we, do we love people as much as we're capable of criticizing? Criticize. Do we enter into their inner being? Or do we objectify them? See them as an objects. And then when remember when the tempting starts taking place and he starts insinuating things in Othello's mind, and Othello's going, Thought, thought. Remember that, that line is repeated twenty times in two pages. He says, I do beseech ye, though I perchance am vicious in my guess, as I confess it is my nature's plague to spy into abuses. He's the kind of person who can see the faults of other people. So he's quick to fault other people. I think it goes to Bob's comment a minute ago. If you live in a regime that prizes the intellect, are we as ready to use our intellects to see good as we are as ready to see the bad in other people? There's something about the nature of reason without love that tends to see faults and not love. Do you think it's to do a... to do that I'm going to, I mean those of you who have been with me from the, to do that you have to go back to the reason as St. Thomas uses it because reason for him is not critical, reason for him opens, the natural object of the mind is the goodness of another thing, how many of us use our minds to see the goodness of other people before we see a fault
1: well.
0: and how does the, and, and what does the Venetian world do to cultivate the because that's what Shakespeare's showing us here in, in uh,
4: Othello. I think it may be conditioned to do so, but I think it's easier to see the fault because there's more of it there. I mean, I, I mean as we get older, right, we have more fault. I mean, if you no, see a baby it or a kid... It builds us up when we yeah. see the fault. Yes, yeah, I mean, nobody looks at a baby and thinks bad things, because it's pure and it's... See, but I disagree. I, I'm going to say... In, I mean, <laughs> wait, wait, because I'm going to say, go back
0: to go back to the Middle Ages and Thomas in a realist Fly. We, What's happened to reason, I gave you that sheet, all of this stuff I've given you. You go back to the Beginnings and watch what we do with our minds, the, the modern mind cultivates that. And let me just try to make that clear. In the Middle Ages, nobody, very few people would have looked at a baby and said, evil baby. There are philosophy. I'll just take one of them, Calvin. Calvin's belief is that certain people are predestined to be damned. So before they're even born, there's an inherent evil in some people. The sign of it, if they do something bad, somebody watching that person is going to say, he's one of the damned. That, that there is a tendency in certain beliefs to look at another and see depravity. That's a modern thing. What it does is cultivate that habit in the mind. And, I mean, if, if this course has meant nothing to you, I hope, St. Thomas's understanding of reason couldn't be more different. That is not what reason was meant for. What Shakespeare is doing is exposing a modern fault. It's us. And he could only do that because there's something against which to measure it. Otherwise, how could you have this good ending at the end? The Venetian world, by its nature, cultivates that kind of mind. That's otherwise, Merchant of Venice means nothing, and neither does Othello. If you put those two plays together, it's hard to miss what goes on in the intellect and what.
3: I'm going to tell you what I think about Othello because I don't agree with you at all, and you know that.
0: <laughs> I've been mean, waiting for this.
3: <laughs>
0: what, what? I don't know what that means, Carl. Because us uh, how you uh, feel, Mark. huh?
3: Othello was not noble. He was just a warrior who won, and so he had a great reputation. His fault was he couldn't determine truth in people, so he believed his military Diego. And he killed himself rather than have his weakness known to other people. I see nothing glorious or noble in Othello.
0: I know. And that's the way I think of it. Yeah. I know. We differ on that, but Yeah. I kinda
3: agree.
1: You agree? Yes. He was
3: weak. Yes.
0: Yeah, I don't well I mean there was a weakness, but I think the point if Suzanne's point meant anything, it was that we've been helped to see something differently in weakness than just evil or bad.
3: I see nothing of Christ in that man.
0: I know, I know, I know.
3: So now, shut up. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: I hope you don't, because I want to hear from you on Hamlet when we get there. Oh, well, that's different. Because we're going to be facing a very similar situation. I I haven't made
3: a decision about him
0: yet. Let's look at, if we can turn to, unless, Carl, unless you've got something. No. Okay. Um, let's see, since I've gone way over the time well, that I was I, gonna take on Othello. Well, this, I just want a quick, quick comment.
2: I think, in, to a certain extent, I mean, your points are right. And I, I look at it from the point of view of the way companies operate today with regard to evaluating people. I mean, once a year, there's an evaluation process. And having participated in that in a lot of a lot of cases, I've seen that the critique with regard to finding things wrong with people Excel. And what I, what I had as a I guess as I grew into the, the deal of doing that, I ended up writing evaluations that I would not write anything down that was Critical. Critical. Yeah. That everything that once you capture the essence of a person with regard to their abilities and talents and credits and what they could do, the rest is all negative. So, and that's everybody can see that. Yeah. So the question is, can you present it that way? The difficulty with it is, is that you if you work for someone in a who who has this other view, like the man who came to me and said, I gave a man an A plus rating who had worked for this other man for years, he tr- come back in, threw the re- evaluation on my desk and said, I've changed it to a C, you write the words to fit the grade. And now, wow, yeah. <laughs> and I just yeah. told him, yeah. you know, just threw it back at him
0: yeah. and said, yeah. you changed the grade, you changed the words. No, I think, that, <laughs> um, I, I don't, I think most of us probably had that experience Yes, in the work right. world because it's, exactly. if you're aiming right. at efficiency and a, a high yield then you start looking at people in terms of just their best qualities yeah. and you want to, to me it's so inhuman because it does not make a place for the ordinary things or the things that don't excel. Right. In America to be the best you have to be good. Well that, that means how do you look at the uh, the rest everybody else? And the, And the great irony for me Bob is all of us came here as migrant immigrants. I mean, yeah. uneducated. Yeah. You know, we're a from it. We place such a value on that without seeing that so often education mm-hmm. makes us worse. Makes us yeah. um, worse. Well, more arrogant. More I blind. And, I mean, Oedipus. We're, we're is the Oedipus study had all the answers, and he's you know, right. and he's absolutely blind. Oh.
1: You know. oh, what? My brothers are both Ivy League educated.
0: Sorry. <laughs> my oh. brothers are both Ivy League oh. educated.
1: Oh, yeah. And at times. I think
0: you hit the nail on yeah. <laughs> the head. The thing that I want to, just before we go ahead, remember this, I'm going to claim that in our world we're much more likely to see depravity than we are to love. Part of that is, I think, because of, you know, close to what Suzanne was saying, because we're wounded, not only by our fall, our, I mean, our pride tends to make, to blind us, I think all of us are blind and, all of us. I mean, I mean that seriously. I think all of us are blind in some way. But the, the question is, I mean, um, Francis wants us out of the pews. Father's homilies get out of the pews. The, the whole drift of Advent is in the direction of mercy. The whole drift of the church in the like. Why? Why in the world would that be if it wasn't to counteract the tendency of the church to be too critical, to, to, see, to, see, to be too quick to see bad? that we're not as quick to see good because to do that means we have to love another from the inside how well do we do that i mean my claim here you know is that poet poetry i think helps us to do that it's interesting when you, if you read the if you read the old testament you, we don't have much help getting inside to a person the david example is a perfect one you know it says he slept with bathsheba he puts Hariah out on the doorstep because he wants to cover his trap. none of that is spelled out we don't get inside David. There's no way we cannot get inside Othello or Hamlet. We get to know these men very personally and what we see when we enter their souls are these I'm going to claim these extraordinarily noble all tragedies about all tragedy is about something noble in the human person. But it has to it will be overcome by a flaw, a fault, and awful things are going to happen. But remember what I said, the turn of all tragedy is to reassert reason, to come out of that, to see, to recognize. So it's always in the direction of hell. So it takes something great and noble, we watch it fall, or we, or we would not feel pity and terror. Why would we feel, if, if there's no fall, what would, we be, what would there be to, to be pity of or to be afraid of? We feel pity because we watch something great, lost. We feel frightened because we watch something great lost. Take away that fall, the nobility and the tragic emotions disappear, and the outcome will be diminished. It's only because the fall is so great that there's such a great illumination at the end, uh, the scene that, you know, that there's... But in Shakespeare, I mean, the, the dumbing down example is good. All, all, the tragic vision that we've lost is of man's nobility, there's something great in human. We've lost that in the modern world. And tragedy is, is based on that view. And in some sense, it's a reaffirmation. of Plato said in The Republic, only the greatest poets can write tragedy and comedy. Name me the poets who've written both tragedy and comedy in an outstanding level. Give me names. Shakespeare. I'm going to say Faulkner, and I'm going to say Homer, Iliad and Odyssey. How many poets have been able to go into the depths of a tragic world and show the depths of grace in a comic world? Shakespeare is the master. I mean, nobody's done what he's done. He, he shows us our greatness and how flawed we can be. Winter's Tale is going to be, I'm just just hoping that you all come to that because you're going to see, by the the way, the Winter's Tale story, the first half of it is the Othello story. um, Leontes is going to do what Othello did, but the outcome is going to be radically changed. So you're going to see a very, very noble man do punishing things to his wife, horrible things. And yet what happens at the end of that play I think is extraordinary.
3: I should have also said that of the Othello story that what Shakespeare is showing is to seek the truth before you take action. I mean that story is all about that all the way through.
0: Yeah, Marcy Yes. Yes, seek yes, but uh, no, I'm um, not no, no duck. Seek truth. Here I'm yes, I'm not gonna disagree with that in theory at all. Because we you and I couldn't agree more. But but I wanna differ in this respect because this, this stuff is really important to me, you know this. Lots of people have said that um, tragedy is... comedy is a tragic action with a wise person present. Somebody, like Socrates, Mm -hmm. who sought the truth, who could avoid it. And I'm going to strongly disagree with that. And if you've been hearing me, you'll know why. The assumption is, if a wise person were there, and how many has had that kind of wisdom? I mean, truly. If a wise person there, the tragedy could be averted. I'm going to say absolutely not. What Shakespeare's showing us is wisdom wouldn't have done this. What he's showing is there, we don't, we, how, we don't have to wait a day before we pick up the newspaper and hear some man has killed his wife, some wife has killed her husband. Murders go on all the time. I don't think it's just because reason or somebody isn't seeking the truth. If Shakespeare's showing us anything that's truth, or I'm going to call it wisdom, because I'm, I'm going to say that he is among the wisest people who's ever lived. He's showing us that reason or the seeking of truth is not capable of dealing with evil. Now, by the way, that's that's what we see in all the tragedy. When we get to Winter's Tale, that's going to subtly change. But the value of the tragedy is that it's showing that even though there are these very noble people here, people are going to die. People will suffer. Evil will do things in our world. There's a fall. And um, we hope, we pray for Christ lots, but we all know bad things are going to happen, um, and we, we we struggle to avoid them. We try to be wise enough. We want to be Christ, be as shrewd as the be as what, shrewd as wise the wolf, as the, wise as the, wise as the serpent. You know,
1: Innocent
0: as t- why, why did he say that? To be as wise as a serpent, you've got to confront evil. Um, what Shakespeare's showing is that, y- yes it's true, I, nobody would deny, it. I don't think anybody loved truth as much as Shakespeare, but he's showing us a human condition so that we can enter into it more fully, I think, to become wiser about the ways of evil, the ways of graces in the world. Let me stop, because we've got a, only a few minutes on Hamlet. <laughs> Sorry, my fault, my fault. Hamlet. Hamlet. Um, and and you have the support of Suzanne all night. <laughs> um, I'm gonna do here. Quick. Just a five-minute Hamlet. Yeah. No, no. We've got we got next week. This is the third week. Mark, I'd appreciate it if you don't make an alliance with my wife here tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Very quickly, we're moving from Venice, which is the usurious, sterile. I reached a point where I said Venice is the unreal city. That's T.S. Eliot's description of the modern city, the unreal city. It's not based in any understanding of reality, and by reality I mean that there's something transcendent to the world. There's more than which just present to our senses. We're moving into um, an, uh, Denmark, and there are two things that we should note about the city. Um, one is that immediately in, um, in the opening scenes, we learn that the word is something's rotten in the state of Denmark. When the guards come out in the opening scene, they, they trouble over the fact that preparations are being made for war, night and day. Sunday gets squeezed out. One day is just like another. The preparations don't stop. Something's wrong. And moreover, they're concerned because this apparition has been making appearances during the night. And there's this sense that there's some spiritual unrest. Something's wrong. Denmark is called an unweeded garden. Remember, the garden is where it all starts in the lyric. The topos of the the lyric is the garden. Denmark is called an unweeded garden. I'd write this down, but I'm running out of time. It's also called a prison house. Hamlet calls it a prison house. So there's something wrong with this city. The second thing to note about it is it's totalitarian. Remember, I read that passage where Claudius, in his State of the Address, implicates everybody. He says, for all this, my thanks. Because he's implying that he's following the advice of all of his lords. So by that statement, we, we're watching a master Machiavellian manipulator. He's doing everything he can to implicate people to cover his tracks. And what happens after that only backs it up. Um, we see him getting Polonius to spy on Hamlet, and we see him getting Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are Hamlet's two friends, to spy on him. Polonius Polonius sends Ronaldo to spy on his son. So this is a regime in which people are cultivated to not trust other people. And it has to be said here in this respect If you watch Shakespeare's hold, you see that in a regime like this, his awareness of it, the ones who are most likely to suffer in a regime like this, a totalitarian regime, are women. Gertrude is terribly fragile, and Gertrude, I mean, a few, takes her life. So in a a totalitarian setting, and, and by the way, so this means In any regime in which people make the state more important than anything else, more important than God, the women are the ones who will suffer most. Because the state powers, totalitarian powers, become crushing. The the sensibilities of women as mothers, the nurturing, that quality to, to nurture, to give, puts them most at risk. So there are qualities to this northern... Regime. Now, why did why does Shakespeare put it this way? There's two things going on here, and I want to just keep them separate. Why totalitarian? All I can do is offer a guess. I, I'm, this is speculation, I, but I but I know Shakespeare well enough to know that he he understood he understood the the only he and Dante. I just I just don't think there's anything about our human nature that they didn't understand. My my guess on this is this that. Um, the northern nations, North, northern countries, were farthest away from the Renaissance and the Greek Mediterranean world and all that it did with reason. And I'm trusting that if you've been here all along you know what I mean. If, if you look at the Greek world what Socrates and Plato and those men did with reason, that they showed that reason is capable of producing the virtues, it can support the virtues, fortitude, courage, you know, that whole world of reason, what Aristotle called right reason. Because there's a reason, the fact that we have reason doesn't mean it's right. It's only, it's, it's only the most virtuous who can use what Aristotle called right reason. And I'm sure everybody knows that because we live in a world, for the most part, in which people don't use reason very well. We know that. Bob gave a perfect example in the business world. that um, those northern nations didn't assimilate. They did not receive that Greek Mediterranean classical worldview that that established the importance of reason in our lives. And they didn't fully assimilate the Renaissance, which was the movement of that whole classical Mediterranean Greek Roman world and, and Christian by that time into the north. Remember, it gets to England because Shakespeare's writing under the influence of the Renaissance. But I think what he's showing us is that those northern regions never fully assimilated. so the way that they use reason doesn't go to the being of things, the virtue of things. It's given to power, control. Um, is that borne out historically? Look what happened to Germany in the wars, if you look at the northern countries. I don't think that's an accident. I think that's a reflection of something historically that had its roots farther back in time. Is that clear? Mm-hmm. So I think, now that Shakespeare doesn't know that. He doesn't know the, <laughs> the world wars. But he's so wise in what he does know that it seems to me it's not an accident that he's showing us this totalitarian condition, this, the giving the, this kind of power to the state. And the second is that it's, um, it's important here because you know that what sets Hamlet off is the private revelation. I know I've already spoken about that, but that he's a student at Wittenberg. Wittenberg, Hamlet lived, I think, in the 9th century. Um, Luther teaches in the 16th century. He hangs up the theses, I think, in 1502, something like that. Um, so um, Shakespeare doesn't care about time. What he's concerned about is truth. Um, um, Hamlet goes to Wittenberg um, because that's the center of the Northern Reformation. And I don't think it's an accident that the play turns on the private revelation because what, what Luther was espousing was the private nature of man's experience with God. And this goes to the point that I was making about Othello. Here's the interesting thing. Once again, Shakespeare never judges. If we look at a Protestant, I think the inclination too often is to say, he's Protestant, he's an object, it's, it's outside our world. What Shakespeare has done is taken us into that world to show us what a tormented life, what it does to a person to live that, to have to bear that. Because once he has that revelation, there's, there's nobody in the world he can trust, nobody he can turn to because it has, it has no precedent. How, how, do you, how do you relate to anything in the world when you have a private revelation of God? Nothing can confirm it. The Catholic Church, whenever it hears about private revelation, it turns through hoops to, to validate them because it knows people who have active religious imaginations can make all sorts of claims. Shakespeare doesn't do that. He, he takes us into this world, into Hamlet's interior, and we're watching a guy almost go mad and watching the effects of the totalitarian state at the same time. So in this play, like Othello, he's showing us a really noble man, but who's been the word I'm looking for, tripped up by this experience. If we look at Hamlin, we see he's an extraordinary, he's Catholic. He's upset because his father wasn't confessed. There's lots of evidence to show that there's a Catholic sensibility. His notions of grace and evil and depravity all show a religious mind. He's a Catholic, but he suddenly has this private revelation and he, he finds out through it, that, that his father was killed by his uncle and he has to avenge him. So Shakespeare takes us into this interior world of somebody who can no longer look at the world the way everybody else does. And he allows us to experience that, once again, from the inside and outside. Um, let me just, because we're late, let me just, I wanna close here with just a couple of things Um, Shakespeare's technique ordinarily I don't talk about that but this is a good play to take a minute with that. What do I mean by that? You remember in Plato's cave the great question for all of us is do we ever stop claiming to have all the answers and begin to wonder, to ask questions? Because it's only when we begin to wonder that we can let go of our certainty about things and move out of the cave in the direction of wisdom. For Plato, remember, that was always asking questions because Socrates was famous for asking questions. He kept troubling people wherever he went. They finally killed him. Huh? <laughs> 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 right, right, right. Um... My kind of man. Um,
3: questions
0: are good. Here? Remember, in the cave, According to Plato, we all live our lives taking the appearances in front of us for reality. And we don't see that there's another meaning to things because we believe that that's, we see things as they are, we've got the answers. and Watch what Shakespeare does with this in this play. Um, we see in the, in the very beginning, when the play opens, um, Bernardo says, who's there? Who's, who's the soldier on guard? Is it Bernardo or Francisco? Francisco Francisco's, Francisco's on guard. guard, yes. Guard. S- see if you guys are reading closely. I should be giving you guys quizzes. Okay. Francisco's the one on guard. Only if you grade us on the good stuff. <laughs> the, the, only if I give you good grades. Um, <laughs> Francisco's on guard. Things are, are upside down. They're reversed from what they should be. Who should be asking who's there? The
1: guard. The
0: guard. The guard. Right. From the immediately, this whole question of who's there, do we really see the person as that person is? Remember what I'm claiming, Shakespeare's taking us into the interior so we learn to see past appearances. Things are upside down from the very beginning. We get this sense that there's this eerie spiritual malaise, something's wrong in Denmark. Um, But we don't know what's going on. If we don't know the play, when we read the Claudius State of the Union, we think, "What an extraordinary man this is!" <laughs> I mean, I, I, I opened the cat. I mean, I let the cat out of the bag on that one. But if you read it, you think, "What an extraordinary man!" Two scenes later, what do we discover? He puts Polonius on his um, on Hamlet. He puts Rosencrantz and Guildenstern on him. Polonius puts Ronaldo on his son. So Shakespeare keeps presenting a scene as if everything's okay. He shows the father sending off his son, giving him all this fatherly advice. If we have time next time I'll look at it because it's, it's so hypocritical. And then he sends his son off and then sends somebody to spy on him. So Shakespeare keeps presenting a, a scene and then later we're giving a scene that reveals something about it. So we're shown Claudius, he looks like this amazing statesman. And then we get the revelation from the ghost who says, my brother killed me. And suddenly we're given a scene on Claudius that we didn't have before. Where did you learn that? Homer. Achilles, we talked about this. Achilles has this appearance and then Hector seems to be this great hero. You know. Um, so Shakespeare is educating us. He's helping us to, to not rely too much on... Appearances. Today we'd say appearances, statistics, facts. You know, everything that's presented in the world that we've got to learn to see that there's something more there. Remember the poet is the one who's always if, if I'm right in this, the poets are the one and Shakespeare's one of them trying to get us out of the cave. Um, can, I, can you think of another example? There was another one. I mean, it's slipping my mind right now. He does that again and again. Um, Act 1 scene 5. Let's just take a look at this and then we'll stop for the night. This is when Hamlet meets the ghost. Act 1 scene Um, 5. Rinaldo, I mean uh, Marcellus um, and, and Horatio saw the ghost Horatio doubted that such a thing existed, remember, and then he sees it and is shaken to his roots. Act, scene, act 1, scene 5, about line 30 or so, um, the ghost is describing what happens, and he says about line 33, Now Hamlet, here tis given out that sleeping in my orchard, a serpent stung me, so the whole ear of Denmark by a forged process of my death rankly abused, that is, they were lied um, to Hamlet, oh my prophetic soul, because we know earlier that Hamlet said something's wrong, that he had all these misgivings. Now this is really important because of what's going to happen later in the book, but just remember that. He had this sense that something was wrong, he couldn't put his finger on it, but he wondered if some bad had been done, he couldn't account for things. And now the ghost tells him that his brother killed him, about line 90. He says, O horrible, most horrible, if thou hast nature in thee, bear it not, let not the royal bed of Denmark be a couch for luxury and damned incest. But howsoever thou pursuest this act, taint not my mind, nor let my soul contrive against my mother aught. Leave her to heaven and to those thorns that in her bosom lodge to prick and sting her. Hamlet's descriptions make clear that the father loved his mother dearly. But all these pictures give us an image of him as a warrior. He's like Othello. He he belongs to that old warrior's code, a, a man of honor, fighting, and and once again, like Othello, tricked by a man of cunning. This is his brother. So in both plays, we show we, Shakespeare showing us that there is a courage to this old world, these warriors, but we've entered a new world in which the mind and its deviousness can do things that this the old World warrior kind of figure can't. Um, Hamlet, Oh all you host of heaven, and earth, what else? And shall I couple hell? He he almost can't believe what's just happened. Imagine, and I'm really serious about. It. Lots of people fault this play because T, even T.S. Eliot said too emotional, too overdone. If anybody experienced a revelation like this, what what would it what effect would it have on a person? Everybody thinks that Hamlet's gone mad. Um, What's he to do? His friends and he come together again, and he s- asks them to swear that they will say nothing of what happens, and the ghost underneath the stage says swear, and they're finally frightened into swearing, and yeah. that sets Hamlet on his course. Now, here's the problem he's facing. If the ghost is evil, he could be damned. Mm-hmm. If the ghost is right and his uncle's evil, then he has, to, he has to avenge him. But how will he know? What he's going to do is, this is an intelligent man who uses his... So he Remember, Hamlet's a transitional figure. He's his father's son. There's a part of him that is a warrior. We see him fighting a number of times. He has the warrior in him. He's not just a man in his head. But he's also an intellectual. He's, he's college educated in a way that his dad wasn't. So the first thing he has to do is devise a way to test out the ghost and he concocts the mousetrap play, he has the players put on the play, and from Claudius' reaction he infers that in fact the ghost was right. And at that point he commits himself to acting. Um, two, Two things and then we'll stop. This critique of the modern mind that I've been talking about, for the last several weeks comes to such a point here. In, in um, Act 2, Scene 2, this is about line 159, when Polonius and the king are speaking, the king says, what do you think of me? And Polonius tells him, and the king wants to know how strong his allegiances are, and he says, um, to my kings, to my God. That is, in Polonius, there's no difference between the church and state. He gives the same authority to the state that he would the church. That partly accounts for its totalitarian character. It has that kind of power. And um, Claudius wants him to find out why Hamlet is behaving so strangely. And he says this. Um, take this from this, and if this be otherwise, if circumstance lead me, I will find... Where truth is hid, though we're hid indeed within the center. This is line 159. In Act 3, Hamlet's going to confront his two friends, and and he will tell Guildenstern, play this recorder. And Guildenstern will say, "I can't. He said, play it. Guildenstern says, I don't know the frets or stops. And Hamlet says, you can't play this recorder, but you would pretend to know the heart that stops and picks of my heart? That you think you can get to the center of my soul? In a totalitarian regime, the presumption is that reason can be used to get to the center of a soul. But remember what the opening lines were. Who's there? But what Shakespeare's showing us is that this presumption of reason in the modern world to make claims for itself that's not warranted. And in this respect, it seems that he belongs with St. Thomas. But reason is a great power, but it has limits. And one of the things that we're seeing in this play is, when people overstep those limits, what happens? Claudius is claiming to have more power, he's putting everybody to work, we're watching a totalitarian regime go to work, Hamlet's at the center of him. He, He's And it, as you, if you watch the drama, it's hard to not feel the suspense, it's like a whole world begins to close in on him. How's he gonna deal with it? What's he, gonna, he can trust nobody, Ophelia is being used, he knows that. Who can he trust? What can he do? Hmm. That's the great predicament here moving into the center of Hamlet. So, sorry that we didn't get into this earlier, but next week we have to finish of Hamlet because we, <laughs> we, have, we have to stop before break so it's when nice we come out of break we can, we can do what? Winter's. Tale. The nice thing about January 8th, we get it, the right. nice thing about January 8th, by the time we get to Winter's Tale, when you look at Leontes, you're going to see Othello and Hamlet in Leontes. Yeah. All right. There's just too much to do with these plays. Too much to do.
4: I think your statement that reason doesn't... The reason doesn't work because we don't have the whole picture and Shakespeare is showing us so no matter what you do you don't have the picture there's part of it that's God. God we just don't
0: know. It's, it's not just that Mark it's it there's a different if you if you read Thomas and
3: how he understands the
0: mind and what reason does and what it's meant to do and look the
1: at the modern yeah. idealist
0: they yeah. card, If you watch the mind there, you're watching something happen to the mind that, in a sense, unseats it. It's, it's trying to do things that by nature wasn't given to do. Me. I mean, I, I agree with you, it's not a whole, but there's also the nature of reason itself and what it, its limits and what it can do. Good absolutely. I think
4: personally.